0: Our conference concludes with a look ahead to October term 2016. So far, the court has taken up only 29 cases, essentially guaranteeing an historically low number of opinions at terms end. Here are some of the issues. Whether the Eighth Amendment requires that current tests for intellectual disability be used in determining eligibility for the death penalty. Whether you can bring a claim for malicious malicious prosecution under the Fourth Amendment. Whether the government can retry individuals who have had their convictions vacated, and whether the exclusion of churches from a neutral state program violates the free exercise or equal protection clauses. This paucity of cases led the author of our Looking Ahead essay, Glenn Reynolds, to lament the cases not heard and to question whether we even have a Supreme Court. Quote, indeed, in examining the Supreme Court's behavior, one might almost compare its role to that of the Turkish or Argentinian armies over much of the 20th century as an independent check on the political system that overturns things whenever the politicians seem to have gone too far. To discuss this term, uh, Turkish, Argentinian, or otherwise, uh, we have, in addition to Glenn Reynolds, Tom Goldstein, and Lyle Denniston. I'll introduce them briefly, but their bios are in your materials. First, we'll have Tom Goldstein, who is a partner at Goldstein & Russell and is one of the nation's top Supreme Court practitioners. He's served as counsel in about 10% of the court's merits cases over the last 15 years. That's a great stat. You should be sending it to all your clients. Um, More than 100 in total, personally arguing 38. Only three lawyers in modern history have argued more cases in private practice, and he's been counsel on more successful cert petitions in the past decade than any other lawyer in private practice, in large part because he often convinces Cato to file amicus briefs supporting him. (laughs) In addition to practicing law, Tom has taught Supreme Court litigation at Harvard since 2004 and previously taught the same subject at Stanford. He also founded and is publisher of SCOTUS Blog, an irreplaceable institution without which my associates would have to do much more work to make me into a Supreme Court so called expert. Uh, among other accolades, SCOTUS Blog is the only blog ever to win a Peabody Award. Tom. Thanks
1: so much. It's, uh
0: come up here. The audience wants to see you in your full
1: height. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you all so much. I really do appreciate Cato putting on this event. Uh, For those of you who aren't familiar with its work at the Supreme Court, it really does represent an extraordinarily unique and important uh, voice, uh, particularly with respect to questions on which a libertarian perspective is desperately needed. There is no... uh, other replacement for Cato and this is a great event annually and it's uh, wonderful to get to be here with you. Uh, while we were dividing up topics I was on an airplane and that so what we agreed was that And we agreed, when I was not participating, Lyle would cover next term, Glenn would cover the interesting cases, and then I would take care of everything else. Um, And so uh, I have uh, cases that their own mothers would love, for sure, but not necessarily incredible blockbusters for exactly the reason that Ilya gives. And that is, the justices were presented with a number of opportunities to step into important and difficult questions when they were hearing uh, granting cert towards the end of last term. But they were very aware, with the unfortunate passing of Justice Scalia, that the court was evenly divided and that there was, given the politics of the moment, no realistic prospect that there would be a ninth member of the court. And so by and large, the justices decided to stay out of a lot of their controversy, of these controversies. And so it's no surprise that we had both a lower docket and also uh, a docket that includes questions that aren't quite as sexy as uh, some uh, might hope. Uh, mostly reporters, uh, but for those of you who don't who prefer to have a Supreme Court that is not actively changing the scope of American life You now have the institution that you want uh, So uh, let's talk about a few there are there are nonetheless a, a number of uh, of Obviously important questions that the justices are going to decide and I think I'd just pick out three or four different areas uh, And then Glenn has some uh, some quite significant cases to talk about in addition to those Uh, With respect to takings, the Supreme Court does have a takings case, which is often of great interest to libertarians, and it presents a question about contiguous parcels. Uh, What you have is situations in which people own two pieces of land that are next to each other, and the government uh, restricts uh, their ability to dispose of the land or regulates it in some sort of way, and you get what are called inverse condemnation claims, where the government is um, uh, putting some sort of restriction, even though it is not... Uh, perhaps actually taking your land. And in this case, along a lake in Wisconsin, a family owned a plot of land and acquired another plot of land, and they were right next to each other. And when they bought them, they were able to do with them as they wanted and to sell them. But over time, uh, the town adopted a rule that said, while each one of those is... Uh, not large enough to be sold and used for a single-family dwelling, you have to put them together. And the question before the Supreme Court is, is that essentially actionable under the takings clause? Is it something that you are going to be able to get uh, just compensation for? How is it that you look at a problem like that kind of regulation? And it's not the world's biggest takings case, but the justices haven't done a lot of work in the takings area. Uh, and so every indication that they give in this space ends up being somewhat significant, and it will give us an indication of how much commitment there is to the takings clause and to uh, requiring the government to pay compensation for regulation and limitations on the use and disposition of of property. Uh, There is also the capital mental retardation case that Ilya mentioned, which is out of Texas, Uh, Here we have a case in which the justices are following up on an earlier decision called Atkins, which is uh, a decision limiting, or excuse me, forbidding the execution of the mentally retarded. And in that case, the justices had said to the states, okay, that's the general rule, but by and large, it's up to you to identify what mental retardation means. This is uh, kind of puts that uh, statement by the court to the test because... Uh, I think it's fairly well accepted that the standard that Texas was using in this case and in others isn't one that's reflective of the most recent science. And so the question essentially is, can you use pretty much anything, including what, what we regard as kind of outdated science, in determining what mental retardation is? And that gives you a sense of... You know, there's a body of cases from the Supreme Court that limited the scope of eligibility for the death penalty. This is essentially Justice Kennedy's more liberal legacy when it comes to the death penalty. Uh, The conservatives on the court have given the states more freedom, have been less willing to restrict capital punishment. But Justice Kennedy, with respect to the mentally retarded and uh, people age 18 and under when they committed the crimes, uh, both with respect to the death penalty and life without a parole, has found that there is a kind of uh, a line by which uh, through which the states may not pass uh, in imposing these sorts of very severe sentences. And uh, Justice Kennedy has tended to be quite protective of the legacy of his own decisions. And the question here essentially will be, will Justice Kennedy decide that this is almost an end around uh, the set of rulings that, uh, uh, that are at issue, including Atkins, and will he require the states to be more active in using science and determining the scope of mental retardation. And it will give you a sense as well about the level and degree of oversight the Supreme Court intends to have uh, over capital punishment. Uh, we have a couple of gerrymandering cases uh, at the court this term uh, that are uh, about the intersection of race and politics, which is very, very, very common. Since the uh, 1996 in Shaw versus Reno, the justices have been struggling with how it is that you account for the fact that Lots of times you have states that are attempting, and this is no surprise at all, to draw uh, district lines on political bases. Uh, And when you have Republican state legislatures, what you have is an attempt to draw lines to favor Republicans. And if Democrats at state legislatures, the exact same thing has happened. And the Supreme Court has stayed out of the business of policing such political gerrymandering. Now, when you draw lines to favor one political party or the other, very frequently what you end up doing is accounting for African-American communities, because African-Americans tend to vote overwhelmingly for Democrats. Uh, And those uh considerations can be quite front and center, uh, if you want to call them racial considerations, in the districting decisions. Uh, and it may well be that there is a legacy of racism underneath that that needs to be accounted for under the Voting Rights Act and the 14th Amendment, or you may regard that as purely a political exercise that happens to use the more rough measure of race or just coincidentally happens to correspond with race when you don't have any racial intent uh, intent to engage in racial discrimination or to to move people on the basis of their race as opposed to their politics. And this just comes up over and over and over after every census. And the courts have become more involved in it than before because most of these states were covered by Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, which as an effective matter was invalidated by the Supreme Court in 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 an issue that may well come back if the court were to tip in the opposite direction. But because the states no longer have to get these pre-cleared, these districting changes pre-cleared by the Justice Department or by a three-judge court, um, they get litigated under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act and the Equal Protection Clause. And so these fights can make their way into court more frequently than they have in the past, Uh, Even and they are therefore more likely to make their way to the Supreme Court and it's uh, among the the questions that's Got to be resolved in cases from Virginia and North Carolina Uh, We have another death penalty case uh, also uh, I think from Texas uh, that involves uh, a question that really arises a lot and when you have habeas corpus litigation and that is something horribly went went horribly wrong in a trial But it's been found out relatively late in the process. And is it going to be impossible to do anything about? So we have here someone who was sentenced to death. uh, And it turns out that his trial lawyer introduced, he's African-American, introduced an expert report, uh, ostensibly on his behalf. But the expert report opined that those who are African-Americans are more likely to be recidivists. Uh, This was unhelpful to his case, it turns out. uh, And a regrettable litigation strategy, most would agree. Uh, but uh, this I was. Bro- to seek
0: a keto
1: but nonetheless got cert granted somehow. The, um, no,
0: no, no, I mean the trial
1: judge. The, the trial, trial, trial I, trial I was see. Turning, I uh, see. That was part of uh, I see. that. That Again, a, an absolute failure of competence as a lawyer to not involve Cato in this capital case from Texas. Um, the, uh, and so the, the lower courts have struggled a lot with how serious the Supreme Court is about these rules that say, look, this claim should have been presented at an earlier stage of the litigation. And so it is a question about when it is that the defendant can bring an ineffective assistance of trial counsel claim uh, depending on when it has been preserved in the state system. But I think what it will end up um, showing us, which we've seen in about a half dozen cases over the past 10 years, is that uh, rubber hit the road, particularly in cases involving race. The justices are legal realists, and they find a way to fix the problem. They sometimes create messes in the law as they do do so, but it is, I think, extremely unlikely that this Supreme Court is going to be willing to allow uh, this sentence to go forward. Um, The final set of cases that I'll mention very briefly involve the Fair Housing Act. We've had big fights about the Fair Housing Act in recent years, uh, including whether you could have a claim of disparate impact uh, as opposed to disparate treatment. That is, can you have a claim that says whatever it is that you are doing in lending or housing patterns or whatever had an effect on racial minorities, even if you didn't intend to discriminate. And the Supreme Court, to some surprise, including mine, said you can have such a claim. This case is narrower. It's about who can bring suits under the Fair Housing Act, whether municipalities can do so or other organizations can do so. There are uh, organizations and uh, cities that are quite committed to aggressively applying the Federal Fair Housing Act, and so it could have some effect on the scope of uh, that kind of litigation. Uh, But by and large, uh, I think that these are the kind of, what you would regard as B and B plus cases that we are probably not gonna be talking about uh, in a decade. Uh, and I think we—I would personally expect to get a lot more of this body of cases as the justices are uncertain whether or not um, when, at the very least, they'll get a ninth colleague. Thanks.
0: <laughs> B and B plus cases? You mean like like Airbnb? What, 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 what did you? Oh, oh B is in the letter grade, yes. and B plus—I would have even given it lower than that. You're very generous. Um, This term will allow me to write a book, finally, because I don't have to pay attention. Anyway, um, that uh, disparate impact uh, case that you mentioned that you alluded to that was a surprise a couple of terms ago, Inclusive Communities versus Texas Department of Housing, those of you who don't scour the legal news wires might have missed that even though Justice Kennedy surprisingly voted to allow disparate impact claims under the Fair Housing Act, once that case went back on remand... Texas ended up winning. The case was dismissed. Uh, so the the what we, what we discussed, I think it was at last year's Constitution Day, about how uh, Kennedy's opinion put a lot of meat there for defense counsel actually was used in this case, and I guess uh, going forward, so it's not necessarily a slam dunk, even though the disparate impact claim is available. Okay, uh, next we'll hear from Glenn Harlan, uh, Harlan Reynolds, who is the Beauchamp Brogan Distinguished Professor of Law at the University of Tennessee, where I spoke on Monday and Professor Reynolds was supposed to give comment to my presentation, but decided that he would rather be at the gym. Uh, so I thought about returning the favor and kind of just not showing up to this panel, but I figured that would be inconsiderate to uh, Tom and Lyle, so uh, we'll, we'll have to keep joshing them. It was a
2: tragic failure of Calgary. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, uh, so, so they say so they say. Um, uh, Glenn's special interests are law and technology and and constitutional law, and his work has appeared in a wide variety of publications, both academic and popular. You might be familiar with his regular column in USA Today, but you probably don't know that he's also a contributing editor at Popular Mechanics. He is the author or co-author of several books, including Outer Space, Problems of Law and Policy. So, definitely a polymath. But most importantly, uh, Glenn's fingerprints are all over the internet because he is the one and only Insta pundit. Glenn.
2: Bringing some water up in case I cough because I understand this is being live streamed on the internet and I wish to spread as many conspiracy theories as possible. Oh. Well, when Ilya asked me to write this uh, feature, I did it once before in 2007. Uh, where I had cases like, uh, well, District of Columbia against Heller, uh, Bomidian against Bush, Medellin against Texas, and such. And so, you know, I, it sounded like fun. I, I said I'd do it. Uh, then as things usually go, I kind of forgot about it until, you know, it got to be close to time. And I this went This forgetfulness and, uh, is a thing with you. Boy, well, that really bothered you. I feel terrible. Uh, uh, the, um, where was I? Oh, so... But, uh, you know, it it rolled around and I pulled the cases and I started looking at it. I was like, gee, there's really not that much to work with here. Uh, And in what was apparently a rare moment of of complementarity here, uh, when I wrote this piece, Ilya told me that I had done a good job making a silk purse out of the sow's dandruff that the court provided, uh, which was a new and not truly appetizing term, but uh, perhaps somewhat accurate. Uh, These cases are, they're not all Well, they're not all B minus or C cases and B plus cases. There aren't really any A plus cases here, I'm afraid. Uh, What I'm going to do is talk about a couple of cases I think are the most interesting. I'm going to talk about something, since it's called Looking Ahead, October term 2016, and since I had a shortage of really interesting things to work with, uh, I chose to read my uh, commission broadly and uh, also I'm going to look at a non-case, which is the behavior of the notorious RBG and injecting herself into our election and what that might mean for the term. Uh, And then I'm gonna talk a little bit about the Supreme Court's sort of uncomfortable position these days. Uh, This is actually a point I've made before, but uh, Mike Grants once told me you have to say something three times in print before anyone notices, and this, by God, is number three. So we will see how it goes. Uh, Among the cases that I at least found more interesting, uh, one is United States against Shaw. Now, that case involves a federal bank fraud statute. It's uh, 18 U.S.C. section 13441, uh, and the question is whether a conviction for a scheme to defraud a financial institution requires proof of a specific intent not only to deceive, but to actually cheat the bank itself. Uh, the way these things work nowadays, and this almost happened to my daughter's college fund, is people set up a PayPal connection, and they use the PayPal connection to suck money out of your bank account and move it somewhere else. Uh, And uh, that is apparently what happened here. My wife watches these things like a hawk, so she nailed the hacker instantly when she saw the little three-cent PayPal transactions coming through on my daughter's fund. Uh, The subject of this scheme, however, was a a fellow named Stanley Shue who was known to the perpetrator and who traveled a lot and didn't check his bank statements regularly. What that meant was that the defendant, Lawrence Shaw, was able to set up this PayPal scheme, uh, pulled ultimately about $300,000 out of Shue's savings account without Shue noticing uh, in time to tell his bank. The effect of this is, at least Shaw's lawyers argued, that the bank was never defrauded, because since Shue didn't review his statements regularly, he didn't have a claim against the bank, because he didn't notify them in time. He wasn't sufficiently careful. And PayPal is not a bank. It's a non-bank financial institution. Uh, Therefore, he couldn't have meant to deceive a bank under the meaning of the statute. Now, at trial, he argued that the government had to establish that he actually meant to deceive the bank itself, and also that he meant to harm the bank itself. Uh, He argued he had no intent to cheat the bank. He just wanted to cheat Shu. And, in fact, the government never argued at trial that he was specifically trying to cheat the bank. He requested a jury instruction to that effect, uh, which was denied and was convicted of 17 counts of bank fraud. He appealed to the Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, which affirmed the conviction, Uh, they said there's no need to show specific intent to harm the bank. You're still waiting to see why I find this interesting, aren't you? I can tell. Tom's looking at me, he's like, yes, yes. Uh, I'll get to that in just a moment. So, Shaw's petition to the Supreme Court argues there's a circuit split on this. Most circuits do say you have to show an intent to harm the bank. And here's why I find it interesting. Mince Ray, a lot of libertarians probably know this, It's kind of a big deal in criminal law reform right now. We are trying, some people, and I'm one of them, uh, to get courts to take the notion of intent more seriously, particularly regard to things like regulatory crimes and that sort of thing. I had a short article on this in the Columbia Law Review a couple of years ago called Ham Sandwich Nation, Due Process When Everything Is a Crime. Now, I have to say, Lawrence Shaw is not a super great poster boy for this, uh, because you know, what you want is somebody who made an honest mistake, who did something that a reasonable person wouldn't think is a crime. Uh, and then gets prosecuted for it. Uh, somebody who just, you know, made a careless error had no real, in, no bad intent. You know, like what James Comey said about Hillary. I guess um, that's what you want. And Shaw is not a very good poster boy for that. But it is a mens rea case in a split circuit issue. It's going before the court. The way the court acts on this will, I think, tell us something about whether the court's paying any attention to this issue at all and how it might lean in more sympathetic cases down the line, and that's why I thought the Shaw case was kind of interesting. Uh, Another case that I thought was pretty interesting is Trinity Lutheran uh, Church of Columbia against Pauley. The subject matter on this doesn't even get a B minus. It involves paving a playground, Uh, but it's a playground in a religious daycare center that is a ministry of Trinity Lutheran Church. There's a state grant program to which various nonprofits can apply for money Uh, Trinity Lutheran applied for a grant to resurface the playground at its Learning Center and the state said no It's denied because of article 1 section 7 of the Missouri State Constitution Which says no money shall ever be taken from the public Treasury? Directly or indirectly in aid of any church sect or denomination of religion Well Trinity Lutheran is a church The money would go to its benefit because it would resurface a playground at its daycare, which is, in fact, a ministry of the church where the children get Bible stories and prayers and songs and stuff like that. Still, a free playground resurfacing job is nothing to sneeze at. Oh, there's probably also a principal here they cared about, Uh, but Trinity Lutheran went to the district court where it lost and appealed to the US Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit where it lost again. Both courts said Missouri is free under the First Amendment to impose a stricter separation of church and state than the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment itself requires. Now, the petitioners argue that um, by excluding all religious organizations from this government program, Missouri is discriminating on the basis of religion. It's favoring non-religion over religion, uh, and that's a violation of the Free Exercise Clause. And they say it's not a neutral law of general application, which would pass under Smith, uh, because it's targeted solely at religious organizations and nobody else. And they say that it violates the Equal Protection Clause because it employs a suspect classification religion that cannot withstand strict scrutiny. Uh, And they cite Plyler v. Doe saying that religious classifications are presumptively invidious and require strict scrutiny here without a compelling interest that would allow Missouri to withstand that. Now, in response, Missouri says, no. Well, big surprise there, right? This doesn't violate free exercise, and they analogize it to a case you may recall from a few years ago, Locke against Davy, where you had state scholarships in the state of Washington, uh, which were not available to students who pursued degrees in devotional theology. And the Supreme Court said that was a permissible distinction to make, uh, part of the play in the joints between the free exercise and establishment clauses. Uh, Here, there's a little bit of problematic history. The provision in the uh, Missouri State Constitution is one of what were called baby Blaine amendments, there was an effort to amend the U.S. Constitution to the same effect, which failed. They were all aimed at Catholic schools primarily. Well, by primarily I mean exclusively. Uh, and the Supreme Court was able to duck this issue in Locke against Davy, but it's presented more squarely here. And you know, if you've got Romer against Evan, anti-gay animus was enough there uh, to uh, invalidate a state law limiting municipalities' power to make anti-gay discrimination laws or gay anti- laws against discrimination against gays. Uh, and uh, there's some intent here. Uh, of course, on the other hand, it's anti-Catholic animus that inspired these baby blame amendments, and it's Lutherans, not Catholics, who are feeling the pinch here. Does that make a difference? I'm, I'm not sure. Somehow, I was reminded of this, and it was barely cited by the parties in the briefs, of a Tennessee case called McDaniel against Patty. Uh, and McDaniel against Patty, uh, Tennessee had a rule that said ministers of the gospel could not serve in the legislature or other elected offices. Tennessee likes you to be religious but not too much. Our original state constitution said you couldn't deny the existence of God or a future state of reward or punishments. but on the other hand, you couldn't be a minister of the gospel or have responsibility for care of souls. They wanted you sort of in the mushy middle there, I guess, to be safe. Uh, The Supreme Court struck that down uh, and said that though the the state tried to justify that also as a way of uh, keeping religion out of government, it was not sufficient. And to me, there seems to be a certain amount of uh, resonance there. Well, it's not a case, but you're probably all familiar with Ruth Bader Ginsburg's uh, distaste for Donald Trump. She was not shy about expressing it, and in expressing it, uh, she ruffled a lot of feathers with an awful lot of people, and by no means Trump partisans necessarily, uh, saying that in fact these were unbecoming remarks for a sitting justice of the Supreme Court to make, even if they were, 80, uh, even if she was an 83-year-old social media hero, as one of them put it. Uh, and that it raises real problems should a case come before the Supreme Court involving Donald Trump. Now, fortunately, Trump is not at all litigious. Uh, but, but still, it is possible. And actually, it's sort of interesting. Uh, you know, a few weeks ago when I was reading over this, I was like, well, looks like Hillary's going to win in a landslide, so this won't really be an issue. Uh, this week, that's not so clear. Uh, it's certainly not beyond bounds of recent experience to suggest that an election case might wind up in the Supreme Court, and complicating things matter further uh, are reports that foreign hackers may be trying to upset the results in the U.S. election by messing with voting machines and tallying equipment and such, uh, all of which could easily, at least credibly, produce a scenario where the Supreme Court uh, hears an election-related case involving Donald Trump, at which point Ruth Bader Ginsburg must either recuse herself or not. with the court divided as it is, that decision may very well decide the outcome of the case. And I'm not 100% sure which way is more disastrous, uh, but I think it's pretty bad uh, should that happen. Um, When you write law review articles, you don't get a lot of really great turns of phrase, but what I said about this was, I said that Ginsburg comments are an iceberg that most likely will never meet its Titanic, uh, but that are worth noting here because should that meeting ever come to pass, the results would surely be the most significant event of the coming term. And I think that's a pretty hard to dispute. Uh, I very much hope we don't get a rerun of Bush v. Gore in the form of Clinton v. Trump. Um, I really hope that a lot. (laughs) Um, uh, For a whole lot of reasons. But if we do, uh, Ginsburg's uh, injudicious comments will uh, vastly compound the damage, and that's a real problem. So some years ago, I was looking at the Supreme Court. It was on the occasion of the 200th anniversary of Marbury against Madison, actually. Uh, And I said, they don't really decide very many cases. And I assigned a law librarian uh, at the University of Tennessee to do a little research. Here are the numbers I had. This was in 2003. The Supreme Court's caseload continues to fall, with the court producing 76 signed opinions last year, down from 129 30 years before. And this drop has occurred despite a dramatic growth in the number of opinions issued by lower federal courts and state Supreme Courts. In the 12 months ending September 30, 2002, the regional courts of appeals decided 27,758 cases on the merits, compared to a mere 777 for the year ending March 31, 1973. The result is that as a percentage of the whole, virtually no lower court opinions are reviewed by the Supreme Court. Well, that's not a big deal, right? Because the Supreme Court's not a court that sets to correct errors in individual cases. It sets to provide guidance to the lower courts to the extent the lower courts actually do what the Supreme Court says, that's right. It turns out there's not a tremendous record of that. Uh, And in fact, uh, Brandon Denning and I did uh, a multi-year, I guess in constitutional law, this counts as an empirical research project. We read lower court opinions. That's that's enough of a sacrifice for a constitutional law professor to count as uh, getting down and dirty in the field, I think. Uh, But we actually looked to see how lower courts followed and implemented the Supreme Court's decisions in Lopez, and then later in Morrison. And what we found was that despite, especially after Morrison, some pretty clear guidance from the Supreme Court, lower courts basically dragged their feet and did not want to implement those cases with any degree of sincerity. Uh, One of our articles on this was entitled, it was in the Wisconsin Law Review, what if the Supreme Court held a constitutional revolution and nobody came? And that, I think, sums out how it went pretty well. Uh, Despite the Supreme Court's supervision, the lower courts just didn't go along Uh, they've been much more quick to implement things that they like Uh, it's interesting sort of the you know the gay marriage implementations happened quite effectively there's been very little lower court resistance there and uh, Brandon and I actually been sort of looking at lower court cases on the Second Amendment cases and we found that's sort of actually in between Uh, but the notion that whatever the Supreme Court does just gets reflected through the lower courts is I think pretty simplistic And we really need to pay a lot more attention to the courts of appeals, how they act, and how they interplay with the Supreme Court. Um, If you want to understand how that relates to the Turkish and Argentinian armies, you'll just have to read the piece. Uh, But I will say that uh, the Turkish army isn't what it used to be in that role, and maybe the Supreme Court isn't either. Thank you.
0: As I was going through the Constitution Day Twitter, I came across a note that apparently there's a poll, a credible poll showing Trump and Clinton deadlocked in Virginia, of all places. I didn't think I lived in a swing state anymore, but stranger things have happened this year. Um, Well, Finally, we will have Lyle Denniston, who is formerly of Scotus blog, but then he decided he got tired of correcting uh, tom 's errors and uh, is now the Supreme Court correspondent for the National Constitution Center. Lyle has been covering the court for fifty eight years in that time he's covered one quarter of all the justices ever to sit, and he's reported on the entire careers on the bench of ten of them. he's been a journalist of the law for sixty eight years, beginning that career at the Oto County courthouse in Nebraska City, Nebraska in the fall of 1948. For any Millennials out there, that is before the internet, let alone Twitter. Um, He also writes for his eponymous blog, Lyle Denniston Law News. Most importantly, he is not an attorney.
3: Thank you, Eli. I appreciate uh, Being invited um, again, it's been a few years since I've been here. Um, I may be the only one in the room who not only has learned from Roger Pilon, but also from Madame Pilon. Um, Some years ago, I took her course in the history of revolution at Johns Hopkins, and I never had a more enriching academic experience. Um, Roger is as much a teacher as Madame is, and I have learned much from both of them. we are, I'm glad to be here on the 227th anniversary of our Constitution um, and be delighted to be uh, uh, the institutional representative here of the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia, which is a fabulous place to visit with your children because it's a great hands-on place. And uh, our new leader, Jeff Rosen, is doing wonderful things with with the Center. Um, I'm going to leapfrog this uh, um, past term and the grants from uh, Past term that go forward and look at what's uh, uh, Either uh, likely to be granted or should be granted because it's very interesting uh, That is either developing or is already at the court um, First of all, let me let me tell you that the conference list for the September 26 conference uh, Actually, it's 25 lists are not much more interesting than what the grants uh, were in terms of high-profile front-page dues uh, but there are a few things on that list that I want to mention very quickly. One, the government's rehearing petition in the immigration case is there. Uh, we, the court could have acted on that over the summer when they conventionally act on rehearing petitions from the prior term, but they did not act on it, and so it's rescheduled. We don't yet know, because the docket does not reveal such f- uh, matters, we don't know whether the court has acted for a, asked for a response. And if you know the rules of the court, you know that the court will not ordinarily grant a rehearing on a decided case unless there is a request for a response. But there are two cases um, that I want to mention on this uh, uh, first conference list that I think are both good uh, candidates for discussion, but also I think quite good candidates for grant. One is a a couple of trademark cases involving uh, the uh, trademark disparagement law which the uh, uh, federal circuit court has ruled unconstitutional under the First Amendment. Um, that's a case involving a rock group called the Slants, um, whose um, obvious uh, abuse of, uh, of sensibilities is apparent. Um, and there is a separate petition for uh, petition for uh, cert before judgment by none other than Pro Football Incorporated, which, of course, is the Washington pro football team that has a name that should go unmentioned in any politically correct venue. Which this um, isn't, so it's the Redskins and
0: we filed in, in their
3: support. Uh, yes, they, 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 but they, it's assert before judgment. They have Their lawyer has asked the court not to grant uh, the slants case unless they also take... Uh, Uh, the uh, Washington football club case um, uh, and uh, should really hear both of them together uh, because the football case involves the actual uh, uh, cancellation of existing trademarks. Um, The the, uh, team has had these trademarks for something like 40 some odd years. Uh, Another potential candidate not quite there yet, but I think is coming, uh, is what could be the first case the court has taken on Guantanamo since uh, since uh, 2008, um, and uh, that's called the Al-Nashiri case, which involves uh, the uh, the terrorist who arranged for the bombing of the USS Cole uh, in a harbor in the Middle East. Um, it's, this case is being handled by a very talented young Navy lieutenant, Mikhail uh, Paradis, Uh, and he's very strongly inclined to seek cert. Uh, He just lost the case in the D.C. Circuit, which is like saying the most obvious thing that you can say about a contemporary law of terrorism. Um, I think there is likely to be... uh, uh, perhaps not early in the term, but as the term goes on, several sequels uh, to the uh, same-sex marriage case. We already have one granted, which is the case involving the baker in uh, Colorado who does not want to bake a cake uh, for a same-sex wedding. Um, And uh, the... uh... Uh, I think you said
4: it was granted or it was filed. No,
3: it's filed. It's just filed. It's pending, not not yet granted. Um, Also, uh, we may see the ACA case... uh, uh, come back um, uh, because, the, uh, uh, as I mentioned during last uh, session uh, or the session before, uh, that the government is now seeking information on how to compromise the Zubik case, and uh, that could come back. We also have an uh, interesting pending uh, in chambers matter uh, that involves uh, who qualifies for a church plan under ERISA. Uh, And this is a big deal uh, among uh, civil liberties groups because they see many more organizations trying to claim uh, church plan status, which of course exempts them from the birth control mandate. Uh, Finally, I wanted to mention that uh, the transgender issue, which is the newest civil rights revolution, has reached the court uh, in the uh, case involving uh, the high school senior in Gloucester County, Virginia, uh, a young a young man, a transgender boy uh, named Gavin Gavin Graham, uh, who is appealing along with his mother. Uh, interestingly, this case is uh, probably, in terms of legal doctrine, much more interesting as an attempt to challenge uh, the continuing validity of our versus Robbins which is the doctrine of judicial deference uh, to agency interpretations of agency's own regulation. Uh, Finally, I wanted to mention, along with Auer versus Robbins, there's a lot of ferment now in the lower judiciary over the question of whether the court uh, should, in fact, uh, reconsider the Chevron Chevron doctrine. Uh, There is, and I recommend it to you highly, a very interesting opinion written by Judge uh, Neil Gorsuch on the uh, Tenth Circuit. The case is called guterres Brisella. It was decided just in August uh, on the question of whether or not uh, um, uh, this uh, gentleman uh, should have a reopening of his deportation case. Um, uh, it, it's a case that involves an interpretation of a statute on uh, invading uh, a minor sexually. Um, but interestingly, Judge Gorsuch not only wrote the main opinion disposing of the claim against uh, the uh, petitioner, but also wrote a separate concurring opinion in which he argued that it is time to overrule uh, Chevron, uh, and there is some ferment going on elsewhere. Uh, a judge um, uh, a judge in the Sixth Circuit, uh, Jeff Sutton, has also been raising questions about Chevron. So uh, that would be obviously a revolution of uh, great interest to Cato uh, if the court were to examine or re-examine either our against Robbins or uh, the Chevron decision. Thanks.
0: Indeed, Lyle, earlier this week we filed a brief uh, calling for the overruling of our, and we'll be filing another similar brief uh, in the transgender bathroom case uh, in a couple of weeks. On the Redskins, I always thought that they should keep the name but just change the logo to a smiling redless potato, yeah, right? Yeah. All right, um, do any of the other panelists want to say anything more before I open it up to Q&A? All right, Um, please wait for the microphone, state your name and affiliation, and actually ask a question. Let's start with Roger.
5: Thank you. Um, My question is for Lyle. Um, Thank you, first of all, for those kind remarks. Uh, I just uh, let my wife know that that you have done so. She is thrilled. In any event, um, during the break, uh, one of our guests here today uh, commented that uh, the discussion seemed to be more technical this year than in years past, and for um, a non-lawyer, a layman, it's sometimes difficult to follow those cases. I suggested that part of the reason was the unusual character of this term, and it's likely to be the same in the next term too, because several of the cases are very technical cases. They're not uh, the kind of uh, red meat cases that we normally get due to the um, complexion of the court right at the moment. But I wonder if you would say a little bit more about this deference issue uh, in a way that a layman can understand it. Our deference does not uh, leap to the mind of the layman as something that is a hot issue before the court. Uh, it involves the whole issue of administrative law and the non delegation doctrine and so forth. Uh, and perhaps you could just say a little bit more about why this is so important an issue, especially as it's come up in the context of this administration, which has ruled so often by pen and phone.
3: Right. Well, um, thanks for the question, Roger. Did everyone hear the question? Um, Let me quickly, uh, would I say something a little bit more perhaps in the language of the street uh, and non-legal terms about deference? Uh, This actually goes to a very foundational question about the separation of powers between our government. Uh, What constitutes the judicial power of the United States, which is, of course, the opening words of Article 3? The judicial power is uh, assigned to one Supreme Court. It has been, been argued, and now by three, and formerly when Justice Scalia was with us, four members of the court, that the doctrine of deferring to federal regulatory agencies the the fourth branch of government by the judiciary is a kind of abdication of their responsibility to interpret what the law is in the fashion that Marbury versus Madison claimed the authority to do in 1803. Um, so that what has been going on for a, a good long time is that federal agencies are not only able to write their own regulations to interpret statutes assigned to their enforcement, but they are able to interpret those regulations, and the, according to the Our Doctrine, the courts will defer to them. The Chevron Doctrine says that if the statute is ambiguous, the courts are obliged to defer, that is to take the word of the federal agency as to what the statute means. Um, And the argument that has been made most... uh, energetically, I think, by uh, the late Justice Scalia, but increasingly by Justices Thomas and, just, and Alito, and somewhat more muted way by Chief Justice Roberts, is that the, this is a, both of these doctrines uh, have um, deprived the judiciary and deprived the people of this country, in fact, of the ultimate determination of law by the courts rather than by these headless uh, fourth branch of government.
1: And can I just add one other, I think that's all absolutely right, one other kind of separation of powers implication for this, and that is its implications for the scope of executive power. In an era in which Congress is kind of on lockdown and not doing a lot, you see this administration, for example, turning to administrative interpretations as a way to you know, accomplish a lot of the administration's agenda. We see this in the immigration context, but in dozens and dozens of others. And I think they've been relatively open about that. And so the greater power that you assign to the executive to interpret the law, the greater the risk that you are giving the executive the power to make the law, which otherwise would be vested in the legislature. And so Chevron is the situation where you have a statute passed by Congress, an agency tells you what the law means, and you have to listen to what the agency says then our is take it the next step. The agency says something relatively formal. They write a regulation and they publish it. But even that, they later say, actually, you know what that means? Let me tell you. Here's a, I'm going to write you a letter and explain what that, that regulation, interpreting the statute, means, kind of two steps removed. Uh, and under our deference, you're obliged to adhere to that. And so I think that it has all of the implications that Lyle describes but also raises these concerns about whether the executive is exercising legislative power.
2: I would just add that one example of uh, the, this agency interpretation getting carried away is Title IX, which uh, was introduced originally as a statute designed to make sure that women's teams in athletics weren't discriminated against in uh, relation to men's teams, and that women had a you know, reasonably equal opportunity to play sports for their colleges, and has now produced these just incredibly convoluted rules on everything from bathrooms to... Uh, sexual assault hearings on campuses and the like. Uh, and if you read the actual like one-sentence language of the statute and you look at the huge superstructure of bureaucratic crap that has been built on top of that, it's truly astounding. And uh, as I say, Robert Shibley has a, has a book out on this now, but it's, uh, it's just an example of how uh, it's all... Well, this is the wrong metaphor. I was going to say like, you, have, you have the grain of sand and then you get the pearl around it, but whatever it is that's accumulating around these, it's not a pearl.
0: I believe bureaucratic crap is the legal term of art that's used.
1: And then next we'll go here. John Vecchioni from Cause of Action is the reason that they're not taking these cases is because it's a a Mexican standoff on the court right now, and they don't know which way it'll go. Um, And I'll I'll just we build the wall that will fix it then. So that's my question, and if anyone would like to take a
4: guess as to the biggest news of next year of who will take the, the missing spot right now, I'd give you the opportunity.
1: We'll who Who gets confirmed.
0: Who gets confirmed. And, and the reason for them not, not granting. I mean, part of that is a regression to the mean. Uh, we can't just keep having terms of the century in consecutive years. We've had five straight terms of the century with every hot-button issue that you can imagine, and so there has to be a... Uh, a, a sliding, but uh, this is... Even well, I,
3: let me jump in on this one. Um, I have a sense, particularly following the cases as closely as I try to do, that we did, we did have quite a number of cases last term that appeared to me on any measure of certworthiness. That is... The court's willingness to hear them should have been granted. For example, the uh, the big case from Washington State involving whether or not uh, there could be a freedom of conscience claim by a druggist who did not want to, pro- to fill a prescription for birth control measures. It produced it, it was denied, but it produced a very, very strong dissent by Justice Alito. I, I have the sense that if there had been nine justices, and particularly if that ninth justice or Antonin Scalia, that there would have been very likely a grant in that case. So I you cannot prove this uh, because the, they do not uh, explain uh, their denials, but I have the distinct sense that they are passing up cases where there is a reasonable prospect of a 4-4 split. Um, And they don't know how long they will have to do that. Um, And there there was a rush of a grant of cases on the last two orders lists of the term uh, to try to fill the calendar through uh, December. Uh, And as a result of avoidance, which I think is intentional, of um, the uh, the more divisive kind of cases, they wound up with a lot of B or C rated cases, and so I don't know how much longer this will go on. Uh, I don't expect more than uh, than um, a half a dozen grants off of this uh, um, uh, fall conference list, uh, even though there are some real dogs there that uh, uh, would be perhaps arguably certworthy, but uh, not headline makers.
1: Yeah, I'll give you one particular example of the court's obvious consciousness of the fact that it is uh, divided 5-4 on a number of ideological questions, and that is Trinity Lutheran should have already been set for oral argument. Uh, because it's kind of first come, first serve at the Supreme Court. When you grant a case, then it just gets in line, and when it's briefed, it gets set for oral argument. But that case, along with one other, the justices have pushed back, I think, in the hope, we don't know, but it seems apparent, in the hope that someday somebody will come along and allow them to actually decide the case that might otherwise be five to four. Uh, I do think they're they're creatures of Washington, D.C. They're very conscious of what's going on. Uh, they should one would hope, and with only rare exceptions as, that Glenn identifies stay out of it, but uh, try they'd they work very hard to make the institution function. John Roberts has been an incredible chief justice in that way. And I think do not like what happened at the end of last term, where you have a significant question like the immigration case, and they are divided four to four, or the Friedrichs case on union fees. And it's, uh, you know, either some great uncertainty is left in the lower courts, or they just simply look like they're not a functioning institution. Um, so I think that they'll continue to stay away, just as Lyle says. In terms of who's going to get confirmed, if one just were to freeze the election today and assume that Hillary Clinton were to win, I think the answer to that question is going to be Merrick Garland. Now, uh, uh, Senator McConnell has said he won't allow a, you know, a lame duck confirmation, but there's, you know, there's intense ideology and politics, and then there's just plain stupidity, and one would not attribute that to the Republican conference, and that would be really stupid uh, because of the very serious prospect from the Republican perspective that Hillary Clinton would put somebody on the court who's much younger and much more liberal. Uh, You know, that's true, whether or not the Senate uh, flips, you just, as a Republican, you do not get a better Democratic nominee than the 63-year-old Merrick Garland, who's, You know, from Central Casting, very serious guy, excellent judge, but he's, you know, pretty down the middle of the road. Nobody would consider him a liberal ideologue. Um, And the next person through the door might well be... Uh, And so I think what you will expect to see is that Senator McConnell will say, you know, I'm personally opposed to this as a matter of principle, but I see the members of my conference plus the Democratic uh, minority really do uh, feel that it's appropriate. And therefore, I will bow to their wishes. And by the way, can we get this done today? I really, uh, (laughs) you know, uh, I got some time. Maybe we schedule a floor vote now. Everybody loves this guy. Right. It was all just confusion, bygones. Uh, so I think that it would be it would be well beyond shocking to me if uh, Republicans were to maintain the position that uh, they will not uh, confirm Merrick Garland, but rather will wait to see uh, who Hillary Clinton nominates.
2: I will just say if that doesn't happen, you're looking at I mean, new president comes in on January 20th. You've got to nominate somebody. Oh, the new Senate comes
0: in January 3rd. So true, but, yeah.
2: but but to but to nominate somebody and have them confirmed, I mean, you're probably looking at February, March, I mean, the term's going to be mostly gone before somebody uh, comes in and gets up to speed. So you're looking, almost certainly, barring a a midnight confirmation thing with with Merrick Garland, uh, you're looking at an awfully long time with a shortage of uh, court members.
0: Two things that I'd like to just footnote. um, The Republicans are saying from the very beginning that they want the next president, the people to decide the next president to appoint uh, the, uh, the next justice. So in a way, they would be sort of hypocritical to then just say, all right, lame duck, let, let's go. I think it's mostly, my personal view is that it's an academic question, whether it's confirmed during the lame duck or the new Senate with Obama or after January 20th. Uh, but uh, if, if Hillary, or a Democrat, who knows if she you know, survives until Election Day or uh, Inauguration Day, uh, uh, then, then Garland probably uh, will be it. Uh, but on um, terms of the moderate radical thing, uh, Garland, of course, hasn't met a government action that he uh, wouldn't defer to. And so on some issues, especially in the criminal justice area, from a libertarian and a conservative overcriminalization perspective, you might want one or two more Sotomayors or, or goodwin Liu, picked the most kind of radical, plausible uh, leftist. Uh, you wouldn't want five or nine of them, but one or two would help on those issues on which Justice Scalia himself uh, was a – he called himself a bleeding heart for criminal defendants. Did you have a question, Ken? There's one coming up behind you.
5: Uh, Ken Jost with Supreme Court Yearbook. I was interested uh, in any handicapping that any of you would make about the Colorado case. I think I have the petitioner's name right. Pina Rodriguez, the one that poses the question, what to do if there's racist um talk in the jury room seems to pose a kind of dilemma between protecting the jury's confidentiality and at the same time guaranteeing you know racial justice um any any handicapping that any of you can make on that case? i don't
3: i don't think that's Pena
5: rodriguez i think it's buck against davis is it not
1: no it's no buck is the case that i mentioned about the the expert report, right? Oh, okay. yeah. Not to be so. confused with Bravo Fernandez, which is ah, on double jeopardy. Okay. Yeah. Okay. No, no, no. 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 Let's just say – let's call it the jury case, and we'll give it a name later. Um, so, you know, this, this is a real – one of those fundamental fairness cases where you think – like the, the death penalty case I mentioned, is the, are, the, are the habeas rules going to get in the way of fixing this pretty serious problem? We have a rule in this country that says, you know, the deliberations of the jury are pretty much secret and inviolate, and you're not going to go challenge your criminal conviction on the basis of what happens in the jury room. And how far does that extend? Um, you know, the, I think the justices will be deeply concerned about opening a can of worms, but they did step into the case. Uh, Justice Sotomayor, I think, will be you know a strong advocate for allowing the at least some sort of inquiry. I think the, the way the court tends to resolve these sorts of things is to kind of make itself feel a little bit better, is to announce a rule. And Justice Kennedy does not like to close doors entirely. He likes to make it possible to articulate a claim. This is true of the fair housing context, for example, that Ilya mentioned. You can nominally bring the claim, but it's very hard to prevail on it. And I would expect that sort of outcome here, and that is it is conceivable that you could identify uh, racism in the jury selection process, but there will be an extraordinary deference to the process, and it'll be quite difficult to make out the claim. I, I, I guess, I would find it surprising if the country had a rule that said, "Hey, by the way, afterwards we found out that this, uh, in this trial of an African American, we had a, a overwhelmingly white jury that was saying a whole bunch of racist things, and that's just too bad." And so you can imagine the extremes to which the pro-government rule would go. That I. I I can't see the court going.
0: By the way, those of you watching uh, virtually, you can tweet at me hashtag Cato
4: Constitution. Jonathan Wood for Pacific Legal Foundation. I have a question for Tom about one of the cases only a mother could love. <laughs> uh, Pacific <laughs> Legal Foundation is the mother, or lawyers as it were, for the Murr family whose takings case you mentioned, and like Trinity Lewis. That's the other one that hasn't been scheduled yet. That's the and that, that's my question. Yeah. Um, it too was uh, granted way back in January and still hasn't been scheduled. Yeah. My question is, assuming the court's trying to avoid having equal four-four splits, how long? How far does it go? Are, are is it? Were we going to see cases granted and then held over for another term? Uh,
1: no. I mean, there's there are there are limits to what the court has been willing to do to accommodate this. So, for example, it did decide some cases four-four last term. And there is historical precedent for holding those cases over for the new justice, and they didn't do that. This is just a kind of like, oh, please, could it be possible? And so if, we, if they get to assign the April calendar, those cases are going on come what may. Because, you know, we do have situations in the court's history where it's divided 4-4, and there has been some material gaps in time from a full membership. So, no, you, it might miss the January and February and March calendars, but it'll be on for April. There's actually a really insightful... All
3: that um, when uh, Justice Lewis Powell was ill for an extended period, I think we had a whole string of 4-4 four, four, uh, opinions in that one term, and we, did, we didn't get uh, uh, Justice Powell back until the term was nearly over, and, and he tried to take part by listening to some of the uh, oral argument tapes, but uh, the court was really handicapped throughout, I think, at least five months of that term.
0: There's a really insightful uh, Wall Street Journal op ed, I believe it was on February 23rd, about the the eight justice or the reduced, sometimes seven justice court since uh, World War II. I commend it to you, and not just because I co authored it. Up there.
4: Thank you. Uh, Paul Avalar from the Institute for Justice. I'm curious if anyone on the panel has a view as to whether the justices themselves
0: are being more aggressive in writing dissents from denial, since they're taking on fewer
4: of these red meat cases, and also whether you think uh, you can see the courts of appeal being more aggressive, thinking that there may be less of a chance that the
0: Supreme Court winds up granting in one of their cases.
1: I mean, I think that with respect to dissents from the denial, the reason you see more of those is directly related to the loss of Justice Scalia, where you have Justice Alito, Justice Thomas um, uh, being uh, more emphatic about the breadth of some rules that are embodied in conservative decisions of the previous decade Um, Justice Scalia was himself quite frustrated, by, of course, by the chief justices' kind of uh, refusal to move the law along aggressively, and so too sometimes, of course, Justice Kennedy. Uh, And so I think it's really their voice that you hear most strongly. I don't think you see a lot of important dissents from the denial. You may see dissents from stays and capital cases and the like, but dissents from the denial of cert, that is to say we couldn't get to four and we really think this case should have been heard, Uh, The left, I think, is still in the mode in which it is happy to see the Supreme Court deny cert. Uh, You know, just dispositionally, uh, they haven't uh, been that excited. There are exceptions where they believe Justice Kennedy believes strongly, such as, you know, same-sex marriage and the like. Uh, But unless and until you get to the point in which, you know, Justice Ginsburg in in particular – uh, and Justice Sotomayor see a viable majority, the fact that they let a case go by the, and the issue could come back you know, a couple of years later, I think is just perfectly fine by them. So I think it's, a, it's very personality-driven. Both Justice Thomas and Justice Alito uh, do not hesitate to articulate what they think are and flag really important issues in the law, including through dissents from the denial. Uh, you know, the, the broader question of how the lower courts react to a more restrained Supreme Court... Um, is I think a is is a fascinating one and is really very judge dependent. Uh, there are you know a lot of the federal judiciary and the state supreme courts just take their job to follow the supreme court's opinions very seriously. There are other members of those courts that see an opportunity to advance the law and say, uh, you know, I don't think there's nearly the chance to, that I'll get overturned. So I think you couldn't you couldn't paint with that broader brush, but you could say that it is it is you'll see more aggressiveness, just how much uh, depends. The other thing is that I don't think anybody really expects the Supreme Court to stay four to four or eight, you know, with eight members for that long. So if you were deciding a case now as a court of appeals judge, you would anticipate that it would be reviewed by a full court. The shifts that you see generally are in the wins related to the composition of the court and its ideological balance. And that is, you would, if Hillary Clinton wins, you would expect to see the almost all of the courts of appeals have a democratically appointed majority now. You would expect to see more aggressiveness on pushing back on some of the uh, Rehnquist Roberts legacy and a comfort in the cases going up.
0: Way back there, back row.
4: I'm wondering as to whether or not the panel would like to offer an opinion on the recent slate
5: of uh, excessive force cases by police departments, and that there doesn't seem to be anything that has moved up uh, the line in
2: terms of the court system on addressing the subject of probable cause and the subject of qualified immunity that has been granted to police forces, which to me seems to be justifying uh, a lot of the excessive force uh, in courts and jury trials, et cetera. And I wonder if the panel might comment on this issue of the racial divide occurring from that subject. Well, qualified immunity, of course, is, I would regard it as one of the paramount examples of judicial activism, though it's not generally uh, heralded as such. But the fact is, uh, there's nothing in the Constitution that says that police officers get qualified immunity, uh, for that matter, there's nothing in the Constitution that says judges get absolute immunity, but that seems very compelling to judges. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the qualified immunity for police officers uh, is, I think, productive of a lot of misbehavior, and uh, is as I, I mean, I used to teach a case, uh, Gregoire v. Biddle, because it's a classic alerted hand opinion. He starts out by telling you it's a case of first impression, and within three paragraphs, he's like, "We must have no choice but to follow the path laid down in the books and let these officials off the hook." Uh, it is. No, it, it, if you take away accountability, people tend to behave worse. We know that in every field of endeavor, and it's no less true in law enforcement than anywhere else. Uh, sometimes police have to make a quick decision where they might get it wrong, and they deserve a certain amount of uh, margin for error in that, just like anybody else who has somebody pull a gun on them and has a tenth of a second to tell if it's a real gun or a fake gun should have that kind of crit. But the, the notion that uh, they get a pass when the rest of us don't uh, is, is quite absurd, and I think uh, is indeed productive of a culture of impunity uh, within the police force and a sense uh, outside the police by people who deal with them a lot uh, that they think and act as if they were above the law because they kind of are.
0: I'll just add that in my nine years now filing briefs for Cato, this is one of the most frustrating uh, areas. The court, from a libertarian perspective, has been pretty good on Fourth Amendment issues, um, uh, policing the police uh, on that in terms of Criminal defendants' uh, 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 constitutional rights, um, but on the qualified immunity side, which is what really would change. Uh, you know, the, in 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 Fourth Amendment cases, often when you enforce those rights, uh, society bears the the burden for the errors and violations uh, of government actors, rather than the actors themselves. And on the flip side of that, the court has not been good at all in policing, uh, and not even by a 5 to 4 split. Where there is a 5 to 4 split, it's heterodox. It's not conservatives and liberals. It's typically the pragmatists over the the, the left and the right kind of thing. Um, uh, but uh, often, by uh, wide votes, uh, the court will uphold qualified immunity uh, uh, doctrine, this artificial doctrine, as Glenn said, in ways that are frustrating to those of us who get to know these cases.
1: I'll say that there a cousin of the Fourth Amendment questions is in front of the Supreme Court this year, and that is the question of if there's a Fourth Amendment violation that is the root of a criminal prosecution and it's apparent, can you use that Fourth Amendment uh, violation as the basis for a claim of malicious prosecution? As the case goes forward, or does the Fourth Amendment violation end when the seizure, the unconstitutional seizure, ends? Can you, in, a, in effect, you know, attack the entire process, which is rooted in an unconstitutional act?
3: Let me um, jump in on this one with, with a, maybe a, a sideways comment. Um, if you haven't read it yet, uh, I recommend highly to you that you read um, Justice Sotomayor's dissent uh, in the case of Utah versus Streif. Uh, which came out near the end of the term, um, t- Section Four of her dissenting opinion uh, was something for which she alone, in which she alone spoke, because uh, Ginsburg uh, and Kagan would not join it, uh, and it very much announces uh, that Sotomayor will be pursuing. An agenda of closely monitoring police misconduct, as she perceives it, uh, it's a very, very strong uh, part of an al- otherwise already very strong uh, dissenting opinion, and I think I think police departments around the country would be well advised uh, uh, in their police academies. Uh, To read that, to make sure that their uh, their new recruits read that opinion, particularly that part of that opinion, and I don't know how often that will come out, but uh, I think she's very much on record now as being an adversary uh, of the kind of conduct that uh, that uh, she sees having happened much too easily on the streets of this country.
0: I see a hand second-last or third-last, rather.
4: Uh, In recent years, books by David Bernstein, others on uh, trying to revive Lochner, either through a new name for substantive due process or heightened rational basis, put forth a variety of arguments. There are a number of cases, for example, in courts of appeal about uh, licensing the right to earn a living, whether uh, a legislative basis... uh, based merely on pure protectionism is sufficient to account as a rational basis. Does anyone think there's any prospect for uh, future economic liberties agenda to start bubbling up and being considered by the court when it's at full strength, or is this just a pipe dream? Is, is, is the anti-Lochner sentiment just going to return, and is this just sort of a passing moment by a few academics.
0: Just to translate this for the layman, Lochner was a case from 1905 where the court struck down a New York state law regulating hours that bakers can work on uh, health and safety grounds. It was actually about collusion and the big bakers trying to keep out the entrepreneurial foreigners. But anyway, uh, there's a big been a big debate that's been revived, as Alden mentioned, uh, about whether to rehabilitate Lochner and for courts to enforce economic liberties uh, in various ways, freedom of contract, right to earn a living, that sort of thing. And traditional conservatives have aligned with uh, progressives in saying, no, it's activism for courts to strike down legislation on on those grounds, whereas libertarians and kind of more New Age originalists um, uh, say, no, we should, uh, uh, Lochner was right, and the subsequent New Deal uh, uh, cases deferring to legislatures uh, are wrong. Anyway, uh, uh, prospects for revival of economic liberty. Anyone want to take that?
3: Well, and I would recommend that the next president go out to California if, she, if she's interested or he's interested in trying to revive the liberty of contract, go out to California and dig up Stephen Field uh, from the gravesite and, and put him on the court and, and hope for a revival of the dissenting opinion in the slaughterhouse cases, because uh, <laughs> uh, that is as strong a statement as you will ever find in the judicial literature uh, about favorites. liberty of contract.
4: Oh yes, where even easier doesn't have to <laughs> travel as far. Cemetery, two down
1: from All right, let's keep him there. Um, <laughs> the, two down from whom? Oh, I will say that the rumor mill today gave you your justice that you need, except that you need nine of him, and that is that Donald Trump would uh, put Peter Thiel, uh, who you know, very famous libertarian. Uh, onto the Supreme Court, Peter would certainly agree with that perspective. And a
2: life—I like the prospect of a lifetime appointment for a man who is actively funding immortality research. I think that <laughs> a, a nice fit. <laughs>
0: there, there are also kind of uh, sideways attacks uh, going towards the right to earn a living and economic liberty, using antitrust laws, uh, among others. There's a case in the Fifth Circuit now called Teladoc, uh, about uh, remote uh, healthcare, telemedicine, uh, challenging uh, uh, certain uh, regulations put in by uh, existing doctors uh, on the Texas Medical Board using antitrust law of kind of following up on the North Carolina Board of Dental Examiner's case from the Supreme Court two years ago. So perhaps using antitrust law on the, st- the so-called state action doctrine as the other side of the uh, economic uh, right uh, coin. Let's go. I don't think we've had it. Uh, Well, you've asked a question. I don't think you've asked a question. Let's Uh, let's try you.
4: Mark Venezia. Wait, wait for the. Mark Venezia, Center for Individual Rights. Um, So, uh, Friedrichs was not granted rehearing, and uh, I'm just curious: under what circumstances are rehearings granted?
3: Well, if if you look at the rules of the court, and I don't know that they're always followed, in order to get rehearing, you have to have a majority of the court, but you have to have the call for rehearing by one of the justices who is in the majority. Now, the question is, on a 4-4 split, who is in favor of the judgment? In a 4-4 split, who is in favor of the judgment? So to which side of the 4-4 split do you look? To pick up a fifth vote to grant rehearing. Um, it is unfortunately the practice of the clerk's office that they do not tell us whether or not they've grant they've asked for a response, which according to, uh, uh, to the standard manual of Supreme Court practice, they won't grant a rehearing unless they first ask for a response. So for example, when they we never saw any sign that they had asked for a response. In Friedrichs, we never have yet seen that they've asked for a response on the government's immigration rehearing petition. But the the rules are very difficult to satisfy on that. And uh, and I think I'm not sure how the court would decide whether or not uh, a fifth vote would come from one or the other sides in order to make a majority. Because you would think uh, maybe this is non-lawyer talk. And by the way, somebody earlier introduced themselves as the only non-lawyer in the room, there are two of us. Right. Um,
0: I, I just play one on TV. Yeah,
3: uh, but uh, I, I don't know whether or not uh, you can say that each of the four on either side are in favor of the judgment because the court is affirming a lower court decision by an equally divided vote, which means that four are in favor of the lower court opinion but four were against that. So I would think you would have to get somebody from those who voted to affirm the lower court opinion uh, to grant rehearing on that case.
1: So uh, I'll add a, just a couple of thoughts. The The meta answer to your question is almost never. Uh, you know, we're, we have experience as lawyers in the lower courts and the courts of appeals, and you see courts of appeals grant rehearing, ah, we got it wrong, and changed their mind. The Supreme Court is, of course, infallible and therefore finds it almost never necessary to acknowledge some sort of mistake. Now, these are weird situations where you didn't have a decision, you had a tie. And so the question is, what do you do if you got a tie and you think somebody's coming along who can break the tie? And the answer to that question is, there are no rules, and you can find historical practice both ways. You can find, uh, at it in similar gaps of time, A series of cases in which the court announced that it was divided four to four, and therefore the judgment was affirmed, and then a request for rehearing was granted. And that led to several of those requests this term, including in Friedrich, so that the losing party, and this is the union fees case, said, okay, we get it, we lost our challenge below, you're now four to four, but here here's a rehearing petition, wait till you get a ninth justice, and then let's have an actual decision. And the Supreme Court turned that one down and a couple of others. Uh, Nonetheless, the administration, pointing to the historical practice of sometimes doing it and the great importance of the immigration case, then said, okay, we'd like rehearing on the question of the validity of the administration's immigration policy. And the Supreme Court, which has issued orders lists, as was mentioned earlier, Uh, hasn't yet turned it down. Um, So I think it's, you know, if Merrick Garland was there now, Uh, I think the administration would have a a reasonable shot, but I think it's pretty unlikely that the court's going to put the case, having turned down these other requests, intends to put that case on a shelf and wait for a ninth justice, including because that case is a very preliminary stage. In theory, the case can be heard if the the new administration were to stick with the policy after a final judgment in the case. But by and large, they don't like to do it, and they have shown no interest in doing it in the 4-4 cases so far.
3: By the way, just to add a couple of facts to to this scenario. Um, uh, Judge Hannon, as you know, in Brooke, uh, Brownsville, has the primary case, and he has put that case on hold. Uh, he, he even will not dispose of the government's Request um, uh, to uh, modify the ethics order. He is not going to do anything with that case until after the Supreme Court acts on the rehearing petition. So, they had they were moving towards a trial on the merits of the government's policy, and even that's off the table now. So, uh, in the the courts dilly-dallying with it is obviously having a great consequence in the trial court itself.
0: And to be clear, the court is infallible because it's final. It's not final because it's infallible. I'm afraid we have to close there. Let's give a round of applause to our panel.